the first having a systematic approach to your public affairs priorities because if you don't if you don't have a clear view of what matters to you from a public affairs perspective and that means integrating the business with the the politics um, you, you can't allocate time and resources second thing is making sure you're using research and analytics uh, and using it early and often and what I mean by that is um, if at the end of the day, this is about convincing some portion of the public or an elected official uh, to take an action. And this is Scaling Clean, the podcast for clean economy CEOs, investors, and the people who advise them. I'm your host, Mike Casey. My day job is running TigerCom, a firm that counsels companies that are helping move the U.S. economy onto a more sustainable footing. I get to meet the people who are succeeding at building, funding, or advising the most successful companies in your sectors. So each show, we try to bring you usable insights from these leaders so you can apply them to the business of running your business. Hey, Clean Techers, this is Mike Casey with TigerCom, and I'm here with a special interview with a friend of mine. And we often talk about community acceptance as a growing barrier to the clean energy transition. And the problem we've identified in talking to our friends who do development for large clean energy companies is that community acceptance has now become more and more a part of the development process. And the slippage is often getting the politics right in the drive to get permit and social license to build something. A lot of our developer teams are now finding themselves engaged in what is essentially a local political campaign, but they don't have any political experience. So we've taken the liberty of bringing in a longtime friend of mine who is a legit political campaign veteran, spent 10 years working in politics at the state, local, and federal level. And he has spent the last 12 years working at the powerhouse firm called the Dewey Square Group. There you even have a Wikipedia definition, and these guys are the national experts on what's called grass tops campaigning. And that essentially is the form of corporate communications that helps large, mature companies secure the treatment they want, secure their policy goals from public officials. So it's the communications part of lobbying. And Jonathan Drobus has been doing this for a long time at Dewey Square. And I thought, hey, let's have him on for a conversation because Jonathan was good enough to come with us to clean power last May, and he took a look around at what our companies are doing when it comes to community acceptance and running some version of grass tops that he runs with much bigger budgets. And I want him to come on and talk to us about what he does for a living, what mature companies do and tactically when they have much bigger budgets, and how that contrasts with what we're doing, and what steps our folks can take to come up to a higher level of effectiveness, knowing that they don't have those Fortune 500 budgets. So, Jonathan, thanks for coming on with us. Happy to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me. So, my friend, I think what's important is first ground our audience in what you do for a living at Dewey Square. You know, you work at one of the preeminent firms that does grass tops campaigning for Fortune 500 companies. And I think a lot of our a lot of folks in clean tech aren't familiar with this. It's kind of a niche specialty that actually is 
It's really quite an industry into itself. So can you kind of explain grass tops campaigning and perhaps some of the major features of successful grass tops programs for Fortune 500 companies? Sure. Um, happy to. Uh, and again, thanks. Thanks for having me, Mike. Um, I, you know, I think the, the term, I would just say, you know, grass tops, I think their term, the term gets thrown around a lot. I think, you, you know, depending on who you're talking to, it could be public affairs, could be advocacy, but specifically, um, I think what's, what's relevant to your audience is building, um, basically building, working backward, what we do and what I've done is working backward from the decision makers who are going to influence your business or influence your sector, whether it is through um, legislation uh, or legislation, project permitting, regulation, um, and building a program uh, to um, make sure that you are building allies and building support to get the results that you want um, from those decision makers and doing that um, for the for the long term um, and creating two-way long-term relationships with a, all kinds of people out there because at the end of the day I mean what we do and what I've what I've done taken from working in politics and then um, from my current perch where I've been the last 12 years at the end of the day what we're doing is educating some audience uh, about a public policy issue and persuading them to take some sort of action. That that's at its core is what we're doing. Whether you're talking, excuse me, about a statewide referendum uh, or a you know a project permitting issue in a town of four thousand people, uh, and there's a lot of different pieces that we layer onto that. But it, you know that's that's what it is at the end of the day. Jonathan, if you were going to list out the major features of an effective Fortune 500 grass tops campaign, how would you list those out kind of in order of priority? Sure. Um, and I would say, and I'll think of this as, as campaign uh, broadly for, for a company. Um, the first, having a systematic approach to your public affairs priorities. Cause if you don't, if you don't have a clear view of what matters to you from a public affairs perspective, and that means integrating the business with the, the politics, um, you, you can't allocate time and resources. So having a really clear and analytical approach to deciding at the local state federal level, what do you care about? Um, and what in, in priority order, um, that's for second thing is making sure you're using research and analytics uh, and using it early and often. And what I mean by that is um, if the, at the end of the day, this is about convincing some portion of the public or an elected official uh, to take an action, um, they're going to be influenced by public opinion and making sure that on the front end, of building a program, building a campaign, that you have a clear understanding of where the public is, whether it's nationally on your issue or at, at a very local level. If you're trying to get uh, a permit done in a small town, you, you need to understand where the public's coming from and have a mechanism, one, to understand that on the front end, and two, to, to track that. Um, and along with that, making sure that you've got a sense of who your targets are, uh, 
from the perspective of who you want to talk to. So who is persuadable, uh, who is on, who's totally on your side and then who, um, is so far on the other side that it's not worth talking to. Um, so that's, as a systematic approach to public affairs, to your priorities, research and analytics. Um, once you have a view of the playing field, you need to have a clear um, understanding of the way that um, your the decision makers that you care about, how they make the decisions, what the, you know, this is often called, um, you might hear relationship mapping uh, is a term that, that gets thrown around. But what the way I think about it is having a clear view of how who your decision makers are and who are the people and issues that are going to impact their decision. Because any, any any building a campaign, whether you're talking about um, grass tops, which we're talking about here, or communications, or any other piece of it, um, you need having um, being able to work backward from how those folks are going to make the decisions uh, is really is really important and distinguishes a focused campaign from one that can kind of go in all different uh, directions. Um, the fourth, I would say, is as working off that mapping, you know, companies, you know, good companies know how to advocate for themselves in their own voice. Uh, the really effective ones uh, that we work with also um, are able to ex- bring allies to the table um, to advocate alongside with them. Uh, so that means both the natural allies um, and then folks who might not traditionally be engaged um, in in a public policy battle, but who, who do have aligned interests or aligned priorities and figuring out how to engage with them and do it uh, for the long term. And I'm happy to get more into that as we go through. Um, and then, you know, the last one I would say is building um, the, I think the mature sectors and, um, have figured out how to build an echo chamber. So when they have a message, um, whether it's at a broad level, uh, or a narrow one, um, they're able to get that out to the audiences that they care about and do it beyond their voice in a way that resonates, um, and amplifies with the decision makers that they're targeting again, whether you're talking about federal uh, or local. What I'm really struck by is how systematic and almost templatized the approach is. So when one of your clients goes into a campaign environment, they know they need to get a said number of people on a particular decision-making body to say yes or no, whatever they're looking for. <laughs> and they're developing a fair amount of research on each decision-maker. They're categorizing them into <laughs> champions, implacable foes, or in the middle. My question is, how deep does that research typically go? You know, I to be done well, it needs to go fairly deep. Um, from, And I think, you know, I, I look at, when I think about research, um, that means public opinion, but it also means... Um, opposition, which we can talk about later, and then this this stakeholder mapping piece. And the more that you know about, um, and when I say the more, particularly from a political perspective, how a council person, a city council person, or um, a county supervisor, or a parish council member, or a member of Congress, how they make 
decisions, who they care about, who their donors are, um, who, you know, what issue, what are their priority issues? What have they taken? What, what have been their stands in the past? Um, who are, who are the people that they listen to? I mean, at the end, a lot of, if you can figure out who, what do they care about and whose phone call are they going are they going to return? That will tell you a whole lot about the best way to approach a communications campaign uh, to persuade them to be with you. And that, and that can go to, should this be something that is um, loud and broad from a, you know, this, we should, we should be trying to get um, in the paper and on TV and make it a big surround sound effort, or should this just be a very quiet effort where we're, you know, it might be two phone calls uh, and we need to keep it quiet and that's it. And having an understanding of how those decision makers make those, um, make those calls when they're weighing tough political calls um, will certainly allow you to do that in a much more effective way. What I hear you saying is that your clientele have you build political profiles of a said policymaker that really is research into what drives them to make decisions. And what drives them is not ideological mooring as much as it is their political calculations and how they got into office and how they want to stay in office. Is that accurate? Yeah. I think that's that's totally accurate, and for for some, I, I will say for there are candidates where those ideolog or members of, of any elected body where those ideological moorings are important, but it it really does go to taking an individual. Each these are individuals; these are people, and people. You know, my mom and my dad make decisions different different ways, and I understand how to approach my mom and how to approach uh, my dad. Um, it's, it's really, it's the same principle. Know, know who you're going to talk to and how they make decisions. I also heard in what you're saying that some of your clientele are leveraging their supply chains and their employee bases in order to mm-hmm. create an echo chamber around the, the, the decision maker. Is that accurate? And if so, can you say a little bit more about that practice? Yeah, it, it is. And I, it's really important from the perspective of starting with your most, your base, uh, to use a, one that's often used in electoral politics, but it carries over too. Um, start with your most natural allies, the, the folks that are going to directly benefit from the legislation or the project being permitted or whatever it is. Um, so your employees who have a, who have a stake in the company and the success of the company, your suppliers uh, who also have a direct stake uh, in the company doing well in it making money in it expanding, um, and we that's that's where you want to start and make sure that that group is informed about your priorities, understands what's you're trying what you're trying to get done and how they can help. I mean, arguably that last part, you need to do the other part so they can understand how to help, but you want to make them members of your team in a way that makes sense. You need to, you need to acknowledge that they've got, that, you know, the suppliers have other, they have a lot of other things that they need to do and so do your employees. Um, but there are ways to make sure that they can take a little bit of their time uh, to help you get your public policy priorities done, um, but it takes a lot of legwork on the front end. So I've heard five or six main tenets of a grass tops program that you at Dewey Square are going to do for a major client like McDonald's or Sony or really big, big budgeted mature companies. Mm-hmm. 
you went to Clean Power. We hung out together. You went to see community acceptance panels and seminars. What did you notice about our sector and how we are pursuing policy goals, particularly at the local level? Well, I think um, there was definitely, the, and I think it might have actually been a theme of the conference, a clear understanding that the um, the industry is at a, and the sector is at an inflection point uh, and based on the huge opportunity that's uh, in front of the clean energy sector, not this is something that all of your listeners know as it relates to to community acceptance and persuade and making the case at the local level. Um, I, what I heard a lot is that we know that this is going to get harder because we're built because the, between the economics and the IRA passing and the infrastructure bill as well. And all the, the, the incentives plus what's happening in the economy the, it, because it's taking off in a way that you're building closer to people. The easiest project to build already got built, and the challenge, the hill is going to get steeper uh, to climb. And I think I, I did hear that definitely a, a recognition and, and an, an, an acceptance and understanding um, of that. And you know, I heard a lot about you know related to what we've been talking about here about using the right messengers and the right messages uh to make the case to um to decision makers and i there was also you know i, I think a clear understanding that the way that the industry um approaches this challenge and how um clean tech companies and those trying to get projects permitted by generation, transmission, um, storage, whatever it is, how they handle this challenge will have, you know, huge ramifications, both for what the economy and the energy economy of the country look like, but also the bottom lines of, uh, of those companies. Um, but there's, all, I think I, I also felt like a question mark of like, well, how do we get from A to B? Mm, right. You know, one of the things that I've been struck by I've read the history of the oil and gas lobby. I've read a history of the chemical lobby. And what I noticed in both seemed to have played out in what I saw when I was a professional environmental activist, which was that around decade seven or eight in the, in the life cycle of an industry, that's when the public affairs practices become mature. They become baked into the business plans of major companies in that sector. And the, I think the fair view of clean energy is that, you know, they're not even in the 20th year of their modern incarnation. So they're disruptors in decade two, disrupting industries that are in decade 10. And yet, they need to figure out ways to try to close the gap despite there being a pronounced budget gap. You know, the first thing when you, we raise Fortune 500 political practices to clean energy companies is, well, we don't have McDonald's budget, which is true. Absolutely. I don't have an oil and gas industry level budget. True. If you were going to coach my sector in beginning to take the steps to try to close the gap between level of sophistication and soundness of a mature industry's public affairs practices and where our folks are right now in their middle of their second decade of growth. 
what would you recommend they start doing? It's a great, it's a great question, Mike. Um, I think to start looking at approaching the um, public affairs and advocacy from a long-term perspective. Um, this is, this is a, it's an immediate challenge. Um, what you're talking about in terms of taking market share from an entrenched and powerful uh, sector um, and to, to address this means building what you're going to build for the rest of 2023 in a way that is going to um, feed into what you're trying to get done in 2027 and 2030. Um, and from the, from the, where I sit on the ally, you know, building, you want to be able to effectively make the case for yourself, but you need to be able to bring, particularly when you're in a tough fight and these are, these are tough fights already and they're going to get tougher. You need to bring friends with you. And it's always easier to ask somebody to do something. If you asking them to do something, isn't the first thing, the first piece of contact they've had from you. If you've got a long an existing relationship that um, involves ongoing two way communication where they understand where you're coming from and you understand where they're coming from. Um, because that where you can build mutual trust. So that's, that's, that's at an individual level. What does that look like bringing it out to a broader long-term level? Um, it means systematically building allies to, to what we were talking about here, Mike, around your base, but then building outward to who will be indirectly impacted. And, and I know, you know, I, I know that companies do this in terms of clean tech, clean energy companies, when they're building projects, looking at the businesses that will be impacted by construction. Um, and those others that will, you know, if you look at an economic impact study, the indirect um, benefits, um, but then getting another, you know, if you think about it from in concentric circles, you got direct benefits, indirect benefits, who are the members of the community going back to the folks that will influence your decision makers who have shared interests and common interests that may not be a direct benefit from your project or your company doing well, but you share values and you have, you have mutual, mutual interests that may not be the same as, you know, funding for your school, but um, where there, where a relationship can be developed because if, if you're in a tough fight, you need as many friends as possible. So that means starting with being able to educate, activate, and deploy your base. We're talking about with employees and suppliers and continue to build outward from there, but do it, do it in a way where, you know, you're not just talking about what's in front of you. You're talking about the long term. So you can go back to folks and it's not the first time that you, you've talked to them and asked them for something because you're much more likely to get a, a, a positive response when you do. So just to make sure I heard correctly, your coaching is generically, I mean, we have a fair amount of variability in program sophistication among the top 10, 20 renewable energy developers. But by and large, you think that the place for them to begin building out their program is in the ability to build base of support early and building an echo chamber around the ask. Is that correct? Yep. And so in addition, and in, in doing that, those things, absolutely. And doing it in a systematic way where, you know, you're do whether you're local, 
each local fight that you have um, levers up, uh, excuse me, ladders up to any priorities that you have at the state level and then the federal level. Um, mm. So making sure that that, so, you, you know, and when, you know, thinking about echo chamber, that means engaging the types of allies that we're talking about in terms of different community organizations and, you know, everything from, um, you know, local businesses to churches and nonprofits and make sure that they understand where you're coming from, um, engaging them as allies and finding ways for them to help you in the, the public policy challenges that you have, but making sure doing that in a way where what you're doing in a town, um, and who you're talking to in that town can also help you maybe next year, if you need to do something on permitting it at the state level, or if there's a bill in Congress, um, that matters that you've got, that you've got your, both your internal system in place and your ex, your external, um, engagement and the teams that you have, that they are, they have visibility into all those priorities, um, and that, and that they're thinking about them. And that, that extends to any, you know, external consultants that you may be working with as well. You know, I think that's actually an important point because I hear in what you're saying that your clients, though they have budgets that would be the envy of almost everybody in our industry, they do not haphazardly distribute philanthropic money in a community. They're giving with purpose. That's one thing I heard. The second thing I heard was that your clients use past investment in community relations building for the next 10 campaigns they're going to engage in. In other words, they use their built infrastructure. They use their sunk public affairs cost to lower future public affairs costs. Is that accurate? It, it, it is accurate. And we definitely, and you know, for, for all this, I, I think I'm speaking to the companies that do this well, obviously, um, that, you're, that there is tight alignment between you know, philanthropic and sponsorship CSR uh, budgets, whatever the you know the term the company is using, tight alignment between those and their their public policy uh, priorities, and again, echoing that theme, doing it um, doing it for the long term, and um, when thinking about maintaining that engagement before, during, and after uh, a fight, and that means. One, just ch- checking in with your allies that have been good to you and that you need, and but sponsorships and philanthropy and community contributions are absolutely um, a piece of that. That and doing that in a way where you know it's not just when you need something. Uh, and I realize you know some that that can be challenging at times when you have a lot of different fights um, spread out. But you know over, and this is where I get to the long term stuff. As as time moves forward those fights will, will overlap. And the friends that you had on a fight three years ago, they're going to need to help you next year. And you need to, you need to keep that engagement ongoing and, and fresh and, and genuine. Jonathan, short conversation, very rich. Thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. Is there any last parting advice you would give to clean economy companies that are working in rural communities asking them to consider having our companies be their neighbors? You know, if it, if you are as a company running in to political challenges, which many, many of these are at their core, making sure that you have political people or, you know, folks that are 
trained in 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 the craft uh, who you have available and part of your team uh, to solve to solve those problems. Uh, I think you know from my experience that you can often avoid um, prob- bigger problems on the front end by having uh, folks with the political know-how who have the ear, their ear uh, that in a way they can understand. See, basically see the problem or hear the problem uh, before before it comes. And when they're really tough challenges, those are the people that you, you need around you. That's a great point, Jonathan. Thanks for adding it. All right. Jonathan Drobis, Dewey Square Group, works with the big boys. I think we ought to pay attention and we ought to see if we can listen and learn from how mature companies run their public affairs, and see if we can adopt some of their best practices to the lower budget realities of our companies. And with that, I'm going to thank Jonathan for coming on and thank our producer, Brian Mendez, for producing this conversation. And we look forward to more conversations with you, Jonathan. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Scaling Clean, the podcast for clean economy CEOs, investors, and the people who advise them. I'm your host, Mike Casey. Our producer is Brian Mendez. If you like what you hear on Scaling Clean episodes, we'd appreciate it if you can give us a five-star rating and leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, we wish you all the best in your clean tech endeavors.